Today we are beginning a new book of the Bible at Grace Community Church. You could call it a new series. And I want to welcome everybody here today to the book of Colossians. We are committed to working through this book together on Sunday mornings as a local church. And so I want to take a minute at the very beginning of our time, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand in response to some questions. And I commit to you in this moment that as your church leader, I will never ask you to do anything goofy with your hands while I'm preaching. Okay? We're about to celebrate God's faithfulness as a local church. Um, and so if you have... Uh, been with Grace Community Church as we have worked through beginning to end these books of Scripture. Throw a hand up and keep it up until till I'm done. Okay, this has been a strategy at Grace Community Church from the very beginning. And so, several years ago, we worked beginning to end through the book of Philippians. If you were involved with that, if you heard God's words preached in Philippians beginning to end, raise your hand. Keep it up. Okay. Next book we work through, the book of Ezra. Again, this is several, several years ago. If you were beginning to end, heard that book. Keep your hands up. Ezra. Alright? Next, a couple of years ago, even bleeding into last year, we worked beginning to end through the Gospel of Mark as a local church. If you were there for that, beginning to end, hold your hands up. Last year, we worked our way... Through the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, if you were there for that, hold your hand up. Alright, look around. The very last book that we have walked through as a local church this year, beginning to end, was the letter of 1 John. If you were there for that, hold your hand up. 1 John, I want you to take a quick peek around, and I want to drive a point into your mind with these hands that are raised in the air. God has led us as a local church. That is a lot of Bible to get into the people of God in just a few years. God has led us down that path. Working through books of scripture. Working through God's word in context as he gave it to us. Okay? Next thing I want to celebrate is as we have worked through those books of scripture, guess what God did? Exactly what he promised he would do in his word. He used his word. In this church, and we have seen spiritual growth in this church two ways. We've grown in godliness. Anybody amen that? That I have grown amen. as I have heard God's word preached in my life. My knowledge of Jesus has increased and I have become more like Christ. And we amen that all across this room. We have grown as God's word has been preached to us. We have also grown numerically as a local church. God has been faithful to add souls to this church over and over again. We have experienced that. Amen? Amen. Therefore, as we pivot into this next book of Colossians as a local church, we should expect nothing less than that. Than God to be faithful to His Word. Than God to use this book that we're about to study to make us more like Christ. And even to add to our number as a local church. I'm saying these things because I want to spark some expectancy and some prayer in your life. That you would call on heaven. And that you would ask God to use his word week in and week out in this church. Let me read a verse to you. This is Psalm 119, 130. It says this. The unfolding of your words give, gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Okay? 
And if I had to pick one, which I don't, praise the Lord for this. If I had to pick my favorite verse on preaching in all of Scripture, for me personally, that's probably it right there. That has comforted me probably hundreds of times as I stand before the people of God and begin to unpack God's Word. Because it gives me a promise. It, it shows me what God does with His Word. It's very simple. In season and out of season, as we are faithful to do what? Come up with something cool? Light shows, smoke machines, creative sermon titles. None of that. As we are faithful to unfold the words of God, what does God do? He uses that and it gives light. Light breaks in on eyes and on hearts. And understanding is given to the simple. That's a comforting thing to a simple man. Like me. And I can just say that for Ryan too. Many times I have heard something like this. Of, Y'all's preaching is just so simple. Nothing about that offends me. Not one thing. I want it to be like that. I want it to be like we're opening the Bible and unfolding these words. No smokes, no mirrors, no nothing. Just word of God and God being faithful to own that word in our life. The unfolding of your words gives light. Light. That's just one of many reasons why at Grace Community Church, we are committed to working through books of the Bible in a systematic way. Starting where we left off, working through entire books of Scripture, preaching God's Word in context. And we've called this, for many years now, we've called this expositional preaching. That's why we do that. That's why we do that. So let me just say this, as we pivot towards Colossians... As a local church, you think about this, there's, we, we couldn't make a bad decision. If I'm opening this book and I say, you know, well, we should go through this book next, or we should go through this, this book next, you cannot make a bad choice. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And so there's excitement in any, in any book that we ever tackle. But something specific that I'm excited about, eager about for us, as Grace Community Church is that this is one of the most Christ-exalting books in the entire Bible. The sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And we get to gather around these words and study them week in and week out and work through this letter. And the first thing I think about when I just say that is what a privilege to us. How kind has God been to us that we even have that opportunity? Us as teachers to preach this book to you and you as hearers to hear this book being preached that week in and week out we get to zone in on our Lord and behold the, the glory and the supremacy of Christ I want you to think about that we get a privilege of walking through this book together we're going to spend some time praying in just a minute that God would bless this this study of his word and I'm talking today but going forward that that God would do some discernible things in this church to increase our zeal, our knowledge of Christ. That we would behold more of the glory of Christ. We're going to pray all those things in just a moment. But I want to say a few things from God's word on the front end before we go to that prayer. To give you some, maybe some more meat to pray towards as we work through this letter. Let me say this. There are... There are at least two broad approaches that we could take week in and week out as we decide what we're going to preach to you as a local church. Okay? And one is to ask the question, what are the needs in this church? 
what so and so struggling with? What are what are you know the moms in the church struggling with? Or what are we weak in in this area? Or what are the kids struggling with? And 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 and, and, and let's see what we're struggling with. See what we're weak in, and let's week in and week out. Let's move in these directions. Okay, strengthening the body of Christ. Now. I don't mean to say that God can never use preaching like that. It can be done in different ways. He does. God does use preaching like that. Okay? But I'll be honest with you. I will drive myself insane trying to discern in a millisecond of what every person in this room needs every single week. And, and just in humility, no man knows that. No, no shepherd knows that. No man knows those things. Okay? And so we take a different approach at Grace Community Church. And the approach is this, that we... Wow. <laughs> I had no idea what that was. Alright, we'll keep going. Okay? We take a different approach at Grace Community Church and it's this. Since we don't know all these needs and everything that everybody needs in the body of Christ... We're going to do this. We're going to humbly put our trust in God's word as it was given to us. In other words, we believe and we affirm that God gave us 66 books that make up the Bible. He did not give us one topical encyclopedia. That this is what the Bible says about prayer. This is what the Bible says about fasting. This is what the Bible says about evangelism. He, he revealed himself to humanity in books. And so we believe that he knows what this church needs better than we do. And so what we do is week in and week out, we work through these books with this. This is the prayer of our heart. God, give us what we need. You know what we need better than we do. Feed your church with bread from heaven. Use your word. That's the idea behind expositional preaching as we work through these books of Scripture. And as we work through Colossians, I want you to look at verse 2 of chapter 1. And there's a phrase there, and it says this, grace to you. Grace to you. All of Paul's 13 letters start with that phrase. Something really interesting happens. All of Paul's 13 letters end with this phrase, grace be with you. Okay? So I want to say something on that to help you pray for this local church as we work through this letter together. Grace to you, grace be with you. Why is, it, why is it like that every time? What does God mean to communicate to us as we take up these letters? And I want you to zone in on that. The phrase grace to you. Okay? God is highlighting that He intends the reading, the study, and the preaching of Colossians to be a conduit and a channel of God's grace and God's power in your life. And we need to pick it up like that. That this is not a mechanical thing. God's about to speak to me. He's about to address me through his word. This is why scripture is called a means of grace. You think about that. What if we came expecting every single week. As we work through chunks of this letter. That grace. Grace to us. Lord. Impart grace to us from these words. And what about the phrase grace be with you. Grace be with you. That's a reminder to us as the people of God that as God uses His Word and brings transforming grace and power into our life as we give attention to Colossians and all of Scripture, as He does that and we close the book, guess what happens? 
Grace doesn't go away. We walk away from the study of God's word and we have received grace and power from God. I'm encouraging you that God can change your life as we walk through this book together. We need to pray towards that end. We're about to do that now. Grace to you and grace be with you. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you today and we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to this church. God, we thank you for every time, God, that you have personally addressed us from your word. And God, you've done it thousands of times over and none of us deserve it. God, we don't deserve to know about you. We don't deserve to be addressed by you, convicted by you. We don't deserve to have our minds expanded by your scriptures. And you have been kind to us, Lord, and we praise your holy name, God. And we come, Lord, and our desire is to be transformed. We don't want to stay the same. We want to be like you, Lord Jesus. And yet at the same time, Lord, we know that we are powerless to do that in and of ourselves. Lord, we are dependent on your Holy Spirit. We can do nothing apart from you, Lord. God, I pray for this local church as we walk through Colossians together, that you would magnify Christ in our life, Lord. That you would exalt Jesus in every way that we can imagine and even ways that we can't imagine, Lord. God, I, I remember in your word when they brought your ark into that pagan temple of the Philistines. And that false god fell down at your feet in your presence with his head cut off and his hands cut off. And they said, the Lord is God. And we pray as a church, Lord, and we ask you to exalt yourself with that supremacy and that authority over false gods and things that distract us away from you. Purify us, Lord. God, use this study for your glory. God, use your word for your glory. Glorify your name in this local church. And we pray that you would exalt Christ to the highest place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, Colossians chapter 1. What we're going to do is I'm going to give you a little background before we go into the opening verses of Colossians. So be ready to bounce around a little bit within this letter. I'm going to mention several verses as we work through some background information. Got, got it? Here we go. Colossae. It's the name of the city. What can we know about this church and this specific situation from God's word? And the answer is not much. Sorry to disappoint you. Okay. The founding of this church is not recorded in the book of Acts. A lot of churches are. We don't have hardly any information of how this church started. Here's what we know. Okay. Colossians chapter 2 verse 1. We know that the Apostle Paul had never seen this local church. He had not seen their face. Okay. This church was not started by apostolic ministry by the Apostle Paul. Instead, Colossians chapter 1 verse 7 tells us that God used the evangelism of a man named Epaphras. He goes into this city and he preaches the gospel and God rests on that preaching, uses that gospel preaching. People repent of their sins and believe in Jesus and boom, up pops the church at Colossae. That's always how churches start. 
Right? Somebody preaches the gospel. God convicts of sin, exalts the glory of Christ. And there you have believers in the midst of these cities. And that's how, that's how it started. Next thing we know about this church is several years later, Paul takes up his pen and he begins to write this letter to, to this local church. And he does it in response to false teaching. Okay? And we've seen this before. A lot of the letters, even the majority of the letters in the New Testament, they're a response to a church is being swayed by false teaching. We saw that in 1 John. Some ways this is very similar to 1 John. Some ways it's different. I'll talk to you about that in a minute. Okay? He is responding to false teaching. Some people call this the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy. Now, I want to encourage us to do something. Okay? It doesn't sound exciting on the front end, but this pays dividends. And I'll tell you why. I want to encourage us to be Christians that dig into the historical context of Scripture, of text in the Bible. Okay? And I'm going to say why we should do that is we can't actually understand what the Bible means unless we know what it meant in its original context. Got it? So a quick way for you to remember that is this little phrase. The Bible can never mean what it never meant. It cannot mean today what it never meant in its historical context. Got it? Okay. You got to know what it meant before you know what it means. And so what can we know about this Colossian situation in this local church? Colossae, relatively small town. And that sticks out to me as something that encourages me. And it might not encourage you in the same way. Okay? But a lot of the other letters in the New Testament are these pagan megacities like Rome or Corinth or Athens. Okay? Like modern day New York or Houston. And just, just pushing on you a little bit. Okay? And, and maybe you have just some weird thing about the town that you live in. But the town that you live in is not like that. It is not like, it is not at the apex of all of culture, shaping culture, okay? In a lot of ways, you live in a small, insignificant town. And this is exactly what this is, Colossae. Relatively small town tucked away in the Roman Empire. I'll tell you just a few things here, okay? At the height of the Roman Empire... They laid down 400,000 kilometers of roads through the Roman Empire. This, is, this, is, this had not happened to this point in human history. A lot of those roads are paved roads, stood for a thousand years. Okay? And one of the things that that accomplished that was completely new, this is the New Testament background, okay, is it accomplished something called the mixing of peoples. You have these people groups... And all of a sudden, travel was a thing for the rich or a thing if you were a trader. And that was your vocation of trading things. And all of a sudden, travel was made available for just the normal guy, the normal girl in the Roman Empire. And there could be some free movement of peoples. And that caused a diversity that had not been seen up to this point in human history. Okay? In a lot of ways, people have said that these Roman roads made the world a smaller place because you could interact and go places that you could not go before. And so what that created, this background 
to Colossians and many cities and towns like it is it created a diversity. Okay? You have um, many peoples living in the same geographic area. And here's what it wasn't like. Okay? Here's what I don't mean when I say diversity. You ever go to um, the ice cream shop and you got 20 different flavors of ice cream and they're each in their little bucket and you're like, do I want this color, this color, this color, this color? And they're isolated in their own container and they're separate from each other, but then they're in the same place. That's not what I mean when I say diversity. Okay? I mean that this was a melting pot of culture, a, a melting pot of worldviews. It would be like throwing all that ice cream in a blender and, and hitting the button. And something popping out. And so this, this blending of peoples created something called syncretism. Syncretism. This is a blending of worldviews. A blending of ideas. And that is the best word to describe the Colossian heresy. Syncretism. Okay? Because it's not just one thing. This is not one dude or a few dudes walking into a local church and teaching one thing very different, some crazy doctrine. This is many different things. It is syncretism, okay? Many different things with one common denominator. All of these false teachings coming from many different directions had the common element that every single one of them were drawing believers away from Jesus Christ. They were drawing their focus off of Christ. This is the Colossian heresy. Okay? Let me just give you a few of these influences. You can jot these down. You can see some Jewish influence in these heresies. You see people emphasizing circumcision. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. Their message was you've got to be circumcised in addition to the gospel. It was a return back to Mosaic law. You can also see them teaching uh, this, this Jewish thrust of this heresy in chapter 2, verse 16. They're talking about dietary laws. Or returning back to the law of Moses and what you can eat and what you cannot eat. Returning back to feast days and the law of Moses and these shadows. And they're even talking about returning back to the Sabbath of God. So there's a Jewish thrust to these false teachings that is attacking this church in Colossae. And you also see a pagan influence. And you see this like a Greek philosophy. In chapter 2, verse 8, he talks about a human philosophy, a worldview that originates not from God's revelation in Scripture, but just the speculation of man. And what, and what man says the world is and how it should govern and this Greek philosophy is making its way in the way that they think about the world, the way that they think about the gospel in the Christian life. And you can also see what I'll call just a cultic mystic influence in these false teachings. It's coming from many different directions. And you can see this uh, in, the, in the emphasis on visions and sensuality and angel worship that's mentioned in chapter 2, verse 18. So you see this. Okay? It's coming from several directions. It's not just a, a Jewish thing, a pagan thing, or even a mystic thing. It's, it's many-sided. Now, there might be somebody in here that says, man, that sounds great, but I'm struggling with none of those things. Okay? And I get you. I understand that. In a lot of ways, most people in this room could say exactly what you just said. But here's the deal. Because of the many-sidedness and the generalness 
of those heresies, what Colossians does is it stands to us as an eternal warning in the modern church that we are not to allow anything to take the place of Jesus Christ in our life. Anything and everything that would assault his supremacy in our life is to be rejected. This is the warning of Colossians. And we're to be on guard for deceptive things. Listen to this. Deceptive distractions away from Jesus. It can look like you're obeying scripture. And you see this in this Jewish influence. These are men flipping to verses in the Bible and saying, that's what we should be doing right there. Sabbath, feast days, dietary laws. Do you know that? Do you know that there are deceptive things that come into your life to take your focus off of Jesus Christ that can be laced with scripture? That's a warning. That's a standing warning for the church and every generation. Well, what about this? These deceptive distractions that can come into your life, they can look like hardcore spiritual disciplines. You know that? That's like the ascetics in chapter 2, verse 18. Harsh treatment of the body. We got to be hardcore soldiers for Christ. Going after Jesus with everything that we have. Not that, not that the Word of God is wrong. Obedience to the Word of God is wrong. Not that being a, a disciplined disciple is wrong. But do you know that distractions... Things that rip away the supremacy of Jesus in your life can present themselves as hardcore spiritual disciplines. Are you aware of that? These are just the, the surface of the types of things that we'll be warned about as we work through this letter. I'll give you one more. These deceptive distractions can look like, catch this, spiritual experiences. Spiritual experiences. And this is a highlight in our day. Of God told me this. God told me this. You walk off by yourself in your prayer closet. And God told you this. And God told you that. This is not a new thing. Do you know that those spiritual experiences that you supposedly have. Okay. What seem to be spiritual can actually distract you away. From the supremacy of Jesus Christ in your life. It's been happening from the beginning. Look at chapter 2 verse 18. I'll just, read it. I'll just read this to you. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. Insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Listen to this. Going on in detail about visions. Puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Not holding fast to the head. Do you know that? In our modern world, the charismaniac world, that these spiritual, supposed spiritual experiences, it's about visions, it's about dreams, it's about power, it's about healings and miracles. Do you know that these things can be nothing more than a satanic distraction in your life to take your focus off of Jesus? And every single one of us need to be warned by this. This is not an ancient thing that we study from a distance. We study this letter for life to be warned by real distractions in our life that are ready to take the place of Jesus. And so I'll say it again. The warning of Colossians is anything that attempts to take his place is to be rejected. To be rejected. God forbid 
that Grace Community Church would be marked by the phrase that we just read in Colossians chapter 2, verse 19. Not holding fast to the head. Any reason that would cause us to not do that is a satanic distraction. It's a strategy put in place to take our focus off of Jesus Christ and His supremacy. And I'll say this to individuals in this room. There are thousands of things in your life right now that are ready to stand in and take His place. Ready at any moment when the supremacy of Christ falls in your life. Thousands of false gods ready to slip in there. Thousands of things for you to emphasize ready to slip right in and take His place. And so we want to respond to this warning. We don't want that to happen in our individual lives and in this local church. So there's a battle for supremacy in every human soul in this room. And the warning of Colossians is that we would fight against anything that would take his place. Got it? Look at the remedy. That's the problem. That's the heresy. How does Paul go about trying to confront this? I want you to notice this. This is a encouraging thing to just know about how life in this world works, how the Christian life works. How does Paul confront the heresy? Well, in a lot of ways, he doesn't. And not like 1 John, not like calling specific things out over and over that are taught wrong. He does address it. He tells them it's wrong. He tells them it's powerless. But if you have four chapters of Scripture, very little Ink is used by Paul dealing directly with the error. Instead, what does he do? He exalts the truth. Beginning to end of Colossians. And we mentioned this a minute ago. Beginning to end, he begins to exalt the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things. In all of creation, nothing stands beside him. And he exalts him so high. That anything that they would even dream of sticking beside him seems silly. Seems silly. And that's what we want God to do as we work through this letter together. His strategy is to exalt Christ. He focuses on the truth instead of focusing on the specific errors that they were hearing week in and week out. And as he does this, he shows them... Colossians, Jesus is all you need for everything. You don't need Jesus plus wisdom. Jesus plus Greek philosophy. Jesus plus law of Moses in the Old Testament. You don't need Jesus plus anything. You have Jesus. And look at how glorious Jesus is. That's his strategy. Exalt the truth. Exalt the Savior. And as he does that, all these other silly things are exposed. And we've said this many times as we pray for this church. Me and Ryan say this. Lord, if we have you, we get all things, everything automatically taken care of. Lord, give us you. Give us your presence. This is the idea. Exalt the Son of God and save from thousands of, of distractions. So I want you to see that. I want you to see that strategy as we see it laid out in this letter. A helpful division, a way for you to think about this book. It's not perfect. But the first half is the supremacy of Christ in Christian doctrine. The exaltation of Jesus in the things that we believe to be true. The second half of the book is the supremacy of Christ in Christian living. The exaltation of Jesus as we live and move and obey God in this world. And the main message 
I think it's summed up best in a phrase, three words found in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. And here they are. Christ is all. Christ is all. There is none beside Him, none that can compare to Him. Christ is all. Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, If a crooked stick is set before you, you need not explain how crooked it is. Just lay a straight one down beside it. I love that. We, we, we said that several different times. And I think that Spurgeon must have read Colossians because Paul knows that. He knows that a local church of disciples of Jesus that are enthralled with the glory of Christ, that automatically thousands of other problems are taken care of. And so beginning to end, he exalts Jesus Christ in this letter. And so our prayer is that we would learn this lesson well. And that Jesus would reign over us as a local church. That he would have the supreme place beginning to end as the head of this church. Here's our text this morning. Colossians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. Let's read it together. Colossians chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. All right, we're going to give attention to these words this morning. And I've already mentioned this to you, the background of why he writes this letter. And so what you have... Is a group of Christians that's being addressed that are being made to feel like they have a second class Christian experience. That I'm not as spiritual. I'm not as Christians as these one walking in the fullness of the wisdom. Walking in the fullness of these other uh, rules and regulations. Walking in the fullness of all this asceticism. They're being made to feel like they lack. Anybody ever been made to feel like that? Somebody exerting some super spiritual experience or some false doctrine. And you walk away from that exchange feeling like a second class Christian. Okay, Probably the most common way that this happens in this culture is this question. Hey brother, have you received the Spirit yet? Hey brother, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet? Hey brother, have you received the gift of tongues yet? And the idea there... Is that, yeah, you know, you believe the gospel, transformed by the power of God, new creation in Christ. Yeah, I'm, yeah, all that. But have you, has, has that cake really been iced? Have you, have you came into the fullness? Do you speak in tongues, brother? Anybody ever been asked that? Not as many as I thought. I've been asked that many times. So that's just a little example of the types of things that were hitting these Colossians. You know what Paul's first move is? First move is to address these Christians that are being made to feel like second class Christians. And he says, y'all got the real thing. Y'all lack nothing. You have experienced an authentic Christian conversion. That's the point of our text today. And that's what I want us to walk away celebrating. That we have experienced the power of God. We have been authentically converted by the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to know that. And by way of these words on the page, he wants us to know that we have experienced regeneration. 
a real spiritual change and that we're not lacking anything. And so I want us to study this, these two verses today with this question as, a, as hanging a banner over our entire time. And the question is, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Say it a different way. Do you belong to Christ? Are you a Christian? Do you belong to Christ? Have you experienced authentic Christianity in a genuine conversion? Okay? Here's what I mean by those questions. It's one thing to respond to those questions with a casual flippant. Oh yeah, of course. I'm a Christian. Live in Mississippi. Live in the South. Yeah, mom's a Christian. Daddy's a Christian. Grandpa is a Christian. Of course, I'm a Christian. Okay? There are many, many false ideas of what that simple question even means. Of are you a Christian? Okay? And so what we want to do is we want to come to the other side of that. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing for us to know what happens when a man or a woman comes into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. We're calling this authentic Christianity. Real conversion to Christ. Are you a Christian? Listen to how Paul describes these Christians in verse 2. They are saints. They are faithful. They are brothers. And they are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. To be described in these ways, this is what it means to be a Christian. And this helps us to frame up that question a little differently. And it puts some meat on the bones. Okay? So what do you mean by that? I know a few of you in this room that will never forget... An old man walking across Mississippi State's campus, catching you somewhere off guard and asking you a question. And he did not ask you, are you a Christian? The question that he asked you was, are you righteous? And many of you will never forget your eyes being this big around of, I have no idea. How do I answer that? I know I've sinned. And I think I believe the gospel. Am I righteous? Do you see how framing the question up just a little bit differently gets you past all those cultural misunderstandings and you're asking a completely different question at this point. Have you experienced real conversion? Have you experienced the finished work of Christ? So these words help us to put some meat on these bones and it gets us to the root of the issue very quickly, are you these things? Are you these things? Are you holy? Are you faithful? Are you a brother or a sister in the family of God? And are you in Christ Jesus? How do you respond to those questions? Because that's what a Christian is. Not a super spiritual Christian. Every single Christian is these things. And with these words, what we have is our attention is drawn to our status, our position before God in response to the finished work of Christ. So he's calling attention in, in the opening phrase. You got this gospel bomb going off that something happened to you. You're not who you used to be. You are saints. You are faithful. You are brothers and you are in Christ. You see that? He's waking them up that they've received 
authentic conversion that they're really Christians. They're lacking nothing. He wants them to know who they are before God. So we want to press into these things. And I say that you can't understand the Christian conversion unless you understand it as a status change. A positional change of how God views you as a human being. Okay? And I don't think you can understand that status change unless you understand that these Christians are not these things by nature. They weren't born these things. They became these things by grace. Do you understand that? That's very important to highlight. Every Christian is these things. Holy, faithful brother in Christ. But no Christian was always these things. Something happened to us. Amen? We were acted upon. God intervened for us on our behalf in Christ. Listen to how this is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse, verse 9. This describes every Christian church that follows in every generation. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then here it goes. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God. Christians are not who they used to be. And this is the question to you this morning. Have you experienced transformation from the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God? There is no soul in this room that can afford to be flippant about the answer to that question. There are many things in life that you can be wrong about. You cannot afford to be wrong about this. Have you been converted? Are you a Christian? Have you experienced real transformation? Have you come into saving contact with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Spirit of God? I am not asking you if you believe a few facts about the gospel... Okay, in an intellectual way. I am asking you, have you been acted upon? Has some transformation happened to you? Were you this way and now you are this way? This is the status change that happens in Christian conversion. Acts chapter 26 frames it up like this. That a Christian is delivered from the power of Satan to the power of God. Has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Do you think that you could get hit by a bus and not realize it? Hit by a freight train and not realize it? Do you honestly believe that you could be delivered from satanic power and transferred into the power of God and not even know about it? Has this happened to you? This is a real experience of Christian conversion. Look further in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. It calls conversion this. He has delivered... Us, He has delivered us, transferred us from the, from the domain of darkness 
into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Has that happened to you? You used to be a citizen of Satan's kingdom, doing everything that he desired. But have you been transformed? Have you been acted upon? This is Christian conversion. Have you been converted? Now, many of you in this room have been converted. You have experienced the power of God as Described in these verses. You've been transformed. You've been delivered. You are not once. You are not who you once were. You, you're justified in Jesus Christ. Sanctified in Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you these things. If that's true of you. And this status is true of you. You're a holy one. A faithful one. A brother. And you're in Christ. I want to ask you a question. What in all the universe that can happen to you. Can take away these things. What in all the universe. In all of creation. Anything that you could possibly dream. Could take these things from you. And the answer is. Nothing. Nothing in all of creation. Can take this away from you. This is who you are. Forever and eternally. Before God. In Christ you are holy. You are faithful. And, and, and you are in him forever. And the second question. It's just on the backside of that. If, if these things are true of you, and this is who you really are, you've been transformed. The second question is this. What could you possibly be lacking if you have these things? If you have Christ and you have the new birth and you have Jesus and his finished work, what do you really need? What are you in need of? At the end of the day, what do you need besides him? And the answer is the exact same. You need absolutely nothing besides what you have received through the gospel. Amen? That's why we sing this song around here. Hallelujah! Not, I have Rolls Royces. We say, Hallelujah! All I have is Christ. Because at the end of the day, He is the treasure. And I don't need anything besides Jesus. And so I want us to wake up this morning... We know these things. We've heard these things. And I want us to be reminded of the glory of what has happened to us as we have been transformed by Jesus. We are in Christ. So let's work through these four things, these three things. Brothers and sisters, you are saints. You are saints. In the world that we live in, that word has been hijacked by the Catholic Church to mean a very small minority of really devout believers scattered across thousands of years. Biblically, it means a Christian. Every single one. Every single believer sitting in that church in Colossae just got called a holy one. A holy one. This is who you are in Christ. That word means that you are set apart. That you're set apart. It's not about the things that you do and your moral achievements. We tend to think about it like that. This is not about holy conduct. This is about a status that you have received from Jesus. This is your spiritual position. It's about status and position, not about your practice. Brother and sister, we know you still sin. We live life around you. You're not fooling anybody. We know you're not perfect. This is not talking about your practice. You're a holy one. Everyone who believes the gospel, repented of your sins and received 
the finished work of Christ. God sees you as a saint, a holy one, set apart for Him. Cut off from this world and you have become God's chosen possession. His treasured possession. The people of God. That's who we are in Christ. And again, this is not attached to your merit. This is something that you have received through the gospel. Listen to this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And just at the moment that we start to slap the chest, that's right, I'm a holy one, treasured one, He says this. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you. You were the fewest of all people. But it was because the Lord loves you and He is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. You're holy by grace. You didn't do anything to deserve it. You didn't earn it. You were unholy and He made you holy through the work of Christ. And again, this is every single Christian. So I'm asking you, when's the last time you caught yourself daydreaming like that about yourself? I am a holy one in Christ and preaching yourself happy in Jesus. Preaching the finished work of Jesus to yourself. When's the last time? This is true for you. This is true for you. Brothers and sisters, we are faithful. We are faithful. Here's what we mean when we say that. Every single Christian, authentic Christianity and real conversion, every single one of us have been healed morally. We have experienced a moral healing. Listen close to, close to this. The Bible com- compares what happens to us and it calls it language like this. Regeneration. Born again. New creation. Something new has happened to us. Do you see that? We're not talking about someone who just believes a few facts. We're talking about someone whose life is transformed morally. They're acted upon by God. They have experienced true conversion. True conversion. Do you know that this is not always true for you? Surely you don't need to be reminded of this, right? That you are not always faithful. That you are, in fact, the Bible says that by nature you are unfaithful to God. That you are disobedient to God. And listen, Romans 1, Romans 5, and Romans 8, it sketches our condition in these phrases. You hated God, Romans chapter 1. You were an enemy of God, Romans chapter 5. And you had hostility to God, Romans chapter 8. Do you know that about yourself? By nature, that's who you are. By nature. Enemy of God, hater of God. And just in case somebody's having a quiet conversation with yourself in the back of the room, in the front of the room. And you're saying, you know, I heard Romans 1, Romans 5, Romans 8, hater of God, enemy of God, hostile to God. Not me. Not me. Just in case that's you, I'm going to plead with you that you would not go down the suicidal path of arguing with God's word. Every single time he will be right and you will be the liar throughout all of eternity. And God's word tells us that human nature hates God. And I'm telling you that this is true of you. 
By nature, you did that. You hated God. That quiet conversation says, not me. But really be honest. Be honest. And you ask yourself this question. Have you always loved the God of Scripture? Have you always liked Him? Think about that very carefully. Have you always loved the righteous judge that pours out wrath on every sinner? That's promised to punish every sinner with eternal punishment. Have you always loved that about Him? And the answer is no. By nature, we hate that about God. We hate that about God. We think that that's unfair. That we, that we would do things better. We don't like that about God. In fact, we prefer a God of our own imagination. A softer God that ju doesn't judge sin. A more morally convenient version of God. That in and of itself. And surely every one of you are on the hook for that. Including myself. Just that example shows us of that deep-seated hostility that we have towards God. We do not love Him as He is revealed in Scripture by nature. This is who we are. This is who we are by nature. But the Bible teaches that the Christian has been delivered from that moral condition of depravity. We have been acted upon. Something has happened to us. Those things were true of us, but they're not true anymore. The ones who are hostile to God are now the faithful ones. We are faithful. What happened to us? We didn't figure things out. We didn't start doing things a little better. We were created new. Raise your hand if you birthed yourself. Nobody. Something happened to you. Somebody, you played a passive role and somebody else did something to you. That's how you become a Christian. You get born again. You get made new. Regenerated. This is this moral transformation that happens in every single Christian. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. New creation. You need to know this. That when God searched for a metaphor to describe how a person becomes a Christian... The only thing in his mind that could do his justice is he reached back and grabbed the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1 where he created all things by the word of his power. And he says, that's how you got saved. New creation in Christ. I am sorry if somebody told you that becoming a Christian was you hearing and affirming a few facts about Jesus. It is being radically transformed by God. This is authentic Christianity. The hostile ones become the faithful ones by the work of grace in our life. And you, brothers and sisters, you have got to learn how to see yourself like this. You have to learn how to see yourself positionally before God. You are not like that anymore. Listen to Romans chapter 6 verse 11. Commandment. So you must also consider yourselves... Dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Same question. When is the last time that you caught yourself meditating on that? Having this private conversation with yourself. That I am not who I'm, how I used to be. I am dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. I am faithful in Christ. I have been transformed. I am a new creation. 
If we were to peek into these quiet conversations that you have in your mind, is this what's going on there? And if not, this is gospel to you. This is a reminder of what Jesus has done for you. And if you have not been transformed in this way, this moral transformation, this new creation, I want it to be so clear of what God tells you to do. Not man. Here's what God tells you to do. So clear. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 22. Specifically to you. Don't guess about it. Here's what he says. Return. Return, O faithless sons, and I will heal your faithfulness, your faithlessness. Return to God, go to God, and He will heal your faithlessness. This is a reminder for you. Jesus is ready to save. You don't have to talk Him into it. He is ready to save every single person that comes to Him in repentance and faith in His gospel. He stands ready. He says return, and He will heal you. This is, this is this transformation that happens for every believer. We'll close out with the third one. And this is the best of all. Of the status of every Christian. And brothers and sisters, I'm reminding you today that you are in Christ. That you are in Christ Jesus. And again, we'll back up and we'll say, not by nature are you in Christ. In fact, the Bible reminds us, teaches us that by nature we are born into this world in Adam. That means that by nature when you were born, you were united to the first man, Adam the sinner. And he gave you a terrible gift. Your great-great-grandfather gave you a terrible gift. It's called a sin nature. And you, the moment that you are born into this world, you automatically are joined to him. And listen to how this is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. In Adam all die. Simple as that. Automatic death sentence when you come into this world. You do not come into this world good, morally good, or even morally neutral. You come with that depraved nature given to you by the first man, Adam. You are in Adam by nature. But the text says that the believers are in Christ. And this is a reminder for us that the powerful grace of God, think of how powerful it is. That sin nature is passed down to every human being. And the powerful grace of God snaps our union with Adam the sinner. And we are no longer united to him. We no longer exist in Adam. The power of the gospel, the power of the grace of God unleashed in our life breaks the union with Adam and joins us by faith. And we are united, not to Adam the sinner, but to Jesus Christ the righteous. To Jesus Christ the righteous. And everything that's His, outside of His deity, His spiritual riches, everything that belongs to Him is yours. Why? Not because we're awesome, but because we're in Him. We are united to Jesus. We are in Christ. In Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. In Christ shall all be made alive. So I want you to think about that first union that was that old realm of sin and death. But the new creation has come. This is like an entirely new existence. You're in Christ. The new creation, the reign of God has made itself manifest in your life. This is for every single believer 
You are in Christ Jesus. So here's what we see him doing here. Paul is reminding these Colossian Christians that they are in Christ, that they have been genuinely converted. And I want to do the same thing to you. Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that this is true for you. This is your status before God. For one million years times a million years times a million years, it never diminishes. It is unchangeable forever that you will always and forever be in Christ Jesus. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can come against it. I want you to know that's true for you. And even taking it a step further, I don't want you to just know that as fact on a piece of paper that yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I've been converted. Yes, I am these things. I want you to see this is glorious. There is nothing like knowing Jesus Christ. I want you to be reminded of the glory of what has happened to you. A creative miracle has been unleashed in your life. Now I want you to see this as we close. To be a Christian is, in a lot of ways, it's, it's an indescribably beautiful thing. And as I looked at this passage this week, I, I still, I cannot get over these words and the beauty of this contrast. Because I see myself and I see my brothers and sisters whom I love sandwiched in these two phrases. And here's what I mean. You, you tell me. These believers simultaneously are in two places at one time. Look at the text. They are in Christ and they are in Colossae. Same Greek preposition. In Christ and in Colossae. Which one are they at? Are they in Christ or are they in Colossae? And the answer is both. Simultaneously, the believer has two addresses. He's two places at one time. And I love this. I absolutely love this thought. That you have these saints in Christ. And they are living and moving and doing life in this world. In these pagan megacities. <laughs> like Rome. Like Ephesus. Like Corinth. And like Colossae. And they're there. Just like everybody else. Breathing the same air. Eating the same food. Going to the same places. And yet, that's not all that they are. At the same time, simultaneously, they are in Christ. And they're moving about these pagan cities. And the life from heaven is pulsing through their souls. I love that picture of a Christian. In Christ Jesus. In Colossae. I want you to be encouraged by this. No matter where you are in this entire world. Go to the biggest cities in the world, Tokyo, London, Istanbul, or these ancient cities like Rome, Corinth, and Athens, or insignificant cities like, if you don't want to pick on Jackson, like Pearl, okay? These insignificant cities like Colossae, no matter where you're at on planet Earth, if you're a believer, you are in Christ Jesus. He goes with you wherever you go. He is with you always. And there is never a moment in your entire life where you are separated from Him. You are joined to Jesus. Always and unchangeably, you are in Christ. You're in Christ. Do you see how beautiful that is? That when that light comes on in the heart of man, in the mind of man, 
then all of a sudden every millisecond of your life is sacred and it is holy unto the Lord. Think about that. There is nothing that you can be about in this world to change that reality. When you go to bed, Christian, you are in Christ Jesus. You sleep in Christ. When you wake up in the morning, nobody, you know, not even tidied up for everybody, not even cleaned up. You're in Christ. You wake up in Christ. You eat breakfast in Christ. Everything that you do, you are in Christ. From the most spiritual things that you do, like seeking the Lord and communion and fasting, to the most mundane things you do, like spreadsheets in your cubicle at work, or laundry, or mundane tasks around your house. You don't do them like everybody else. You do them with the life of God pulsing through your soul. You're in Christ. You're in Christ. And that means you don't live in this world like everybody else lives in this world. Why? Because you're in Christ. You're in Christ Jesus. Always and unchangeably in Christ. Always and unchangeably in Christ. And I want to encourage you as we close. You need that high view of what has happened to you. You need a high view of what has happened to you. And you've heard this story before. Charles Spurgeon used to tell a story about three bricklayers. They're all doing the same exact work. And they're asked the same exact question. And you have very different answers. So you, you pass this bricklayer and they're all on the same job site. And you say, what are you doing? And the first says, I'm laying brick. Okay, nothing special about it. He's a simple man, cut and dry. And the second guy, you ask the same question. Hey, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a mighty wall. Same work, same exact place on the job site. He's a little more encouraged about what he's doing. He's got a little more sense of perspective of what he's doing. And then Spurgeon says, but you ask the third guy the same question. He says, what are you doing? He says, I'm building a glorious cathedral where the church of God is going to worship. Here, here's, the, here's the reminder that I want to leave you with. That you can be doing the same exact thing as everybody else with differing degrees of awareness of what has happened to you and the glory of what has happened to you. And we want to wake up to life in this world lived in Christ. And for the Christian, that means that for us to live is Christ. That we're pushing out all of these places in our life where He doesn't reign supreme. We're not mindful of Him. Every single moment we are in Christ Jesus. You need that glorious view of Christian conversion. Something glorious has happened to you. There's nothing boring about it. The only boring part is when we don't see it rightly. Nothing boring about it. You need to know who you are. You need to know what has happened to you. You need to know your identity, your status before the Lord. I'll say two things. If you don't know these things, the book of Colossians tells us that you are wide open and susceptible to false teaching. To false teaching. If you do not know who you are in Christ Jesus, if you do not know that He has finished the work on your behalf, then you will go about trying to finish that work in millions of different ways. You have to know that something has been done for you. Or you're wide open to heresy and false gospels. And the second truth is this. You have to know who you are in Christ or you're wide open to false living. 
Not just believing false things, but false living. Here's what I mean by this. Your identity as a Christian precedes your obedience to Christ's commands. Let me, let me unpack that for a minute. We said it this way before. The dones of scriptures come before the dues of scriptures. You need to know that something has happened to you so that you don't get those flipped around because flipped around, that's a death sentence. It is a death sentence. If you walk out of this room and all you know is, I want to live for Christ. I want to obey Christ. Unless you have received something from Jesus, you might as well sign your name on the death certificate. There's no gospel there. You need something done for you and to you before you ever come to obedience to Christ. And so you knowing who you are puts those in right order and it helps you. Okay? Now you're empowered by Jesus to obey the commands of Scripture. You're obeying from righteousness and from the finished work of Christ and not for it. Not trying to earn God's favor and earn God's righteousness. And I'm going to say that that, that alone, that idea alone, the duns before the dues, is the only kind of obedience that glorifies Christ. Because He's the one doing it for the Christian. It's the only kind of obedience in the Christian life that screams Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Christ is all. Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything I need for Christian doctrine and everything I need for Christian living. So you have to know who you are. You have to know what has happened to you. And I want to close with this quote from Charles Simeon. He says this, Christian, you have been brought from, by God from death to life, from sin to holiness, and from hell to heaven. Christian, rise up and bless the God of your salvation. And that's exactly where I want to leave our time today. Let's worship the God that has acted upon us. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you, God, for your salvation. Lord, thank you that you have done a mighty work to us in Jesus. God, we want to magnify your power. We want to remember your power that you displayed in our life in conversion. And God, we ask you to do it again in our city. God, add souls to, to our number. Add men and women to your church, Lord. Glorify yourself in our generation in the present day as the Savior of sinners. The God of the new creation that transforms men and women. Do it, Lord. God, use this church for that end. And we ask, Lord, that you would pull back the veil of coldness and indifference and a sleepiness to the gospel and the glory of what you have done in our life. Help us to see it, Lord, and help us to worship you. In Jesus' name.